this is episode number eight of Ships with performing artist, writer, and speaker Tessalena. Welcome to Ships. My name is Pat McCandrew, and I am a professional actor, speaker, and coach. In every episode, we discuss a message related to the most important vessels in our lives. Thanks for being here today. Now let's set sail. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ships Podcast. Today, I am very excited to announce our guest, Tessalena. Tessalena is a performing artist, a writer, and an immigrant New Yorker with a dramatic survival story. She has been featured in a documentary about her adventures and on Douglas Rushkoff's podcast, Team Human. She is on a mission to create social change by bringing people closer together and by helping fellow community members talk to each other over disagreements. She has traveled the world, done academic research in Tibet, worked as a developer at Blue Cross and Blue Shield, performed her music at the Moscow Conservatory, fought off a sex trafficker in China, survived an abusive marriage, and even spent a month in jail after being wrongfully arrested by immigration during the Bush administration. Yes, she was able to successfully prove her case, and she is currently a proud U.S. citizen. Tessa believes that a true sense of community is crucial for each individual's well-being and that we have the power to help each other be the best versions of ourselves. You are all in for an incredible episode today in Ships. Tessa explains her story from her upbringing in Russia to when she traveled to Tibet and the struggles that she faced along the way then, as well as when she came to the United States. She talks a little bit about her experience in the tech field and what she wants to change about how technology is running today. And she also talked about her experience as an artist, the need to create art, and why it is important in the digital age. So I really hope you enjoy this episode with Tessa. She provides some great insight into what it means to be human, what it means to communicate with other humans, and really how to build genuine human relationships in today's society. So without further ado, the performing artist, the speaker, the writer, Tessa Lena. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Ships Podcast. Today we have Tessa Lena with us today. Tessa, thank you so much for being on Ships. Hi, Pat. I'm very, very happy to be on Ships. Thank you so much for inviting me. You have uh, an incredible story. We got acquainted with each other, I guess it was maybe a little bit over a year ago. And I knew that you were an artist, a musician, really talking about uh, issues when it comes to technology. So you are definitely someone I really wanted to connect with. You know, we've had the opportunity to meet up a few times and and talk about all these important issues. Oh, that was that was a really fortunate thing that we stumble upon each other because we share so many topics and subjects and 
probably views on technology and humanity. So I'm incredibly happy to be talking to you right now. Well, we're excited to have you here. And I think that the audience is going to get a lot out of uh, hearing your story and, and all the great work that you're doing. So I'm wondering if you could just start out by telling us uh, a little bit a little bit about yourself, maybe a bit about your background, where you're from, where you grew up, and really what led you to uh, where you're at today and the work that you're doing. Well, I grew up in Moscow and, uh, well, usually Russian parents come with like classical piano lessons, which is exactly what happened to me. Uh, so when I was brought to a music school when I was five years old, some teacher, some adult, some adults working at the school asked me what instruments I, I wanted to play. And I said sincerely that I wanted to play the violin. Well, that never happened. They put me straight to the piano class. And so I was doing classical piano all of my childhood. And then I decided that I wanted to study Tibetan language, which I guess was an abrupt transition, but I was really excited about Eastern philosophy and uh, I started studying Tibetan language. I went to Tibet. I did a study on music and language. And that was extremely exciting. But I was not able to finish it because I got into my first major adventure, which is, well, uh, I was also uh, playing in a movie that my friend was making in Tibet. And... Uh, I was going to go to Hong Kong to renew my visa and then come back. And on the way from Tibet to Hong Kong, I was attacked by sex trafficker, which was fairly dramatic. I think that was the first time uh, that I encountered kind of a culture clash in a very strange and violent way because the guy was, I mean, like he was actually like beating me up for, for a while, including with his feet on my stomach and all that, pretty ugly. But say like bad guys happen what was really striking is that there was a crowd of people like people who had nothing to do with him allegedly and then they some of them were laughing so they witnessed it they didn't defend me they just i mean some of them actually enjoyed it and oh my gosh it's probably because i don't know like maybe he was mobbed up or maybe i look different but that was kind of that situation of like what is it like racism something but because i was from a different culture and i look different they didn't see me as one of them and they did not mind violence at all, which was really, really strange. I mean, I will never forget the laughing faces and uh, that, that taught me something, but luckily everything ended well. I mean, I was lucky. It has nothing to do with my courage or genius or anything. So I eventually, he, he threw me in a truck and I jumped out of the truck on autopilot and that's how I escaped and that's how I'm alive. So, and this was and, and I, this was while you were still in school. You were studying in, yeah, in Tibet. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so my research was. I mean, it kind of ended there because I left all of my computer, all of my like everything that I've done. I, I, I never came back because it was just. I mean, I, I guess I was traumatized and scared, but in, in the long run, everything worked out. So. That happened, and then I came to the States, and that was very interesting because I was put in a very different world uh, back home and during my travels. You know, like Russian culture is very focused on arts, and people respect artists and poets and musicians. I mean, they're still poor, but there's respect for that. 
And I didn't know how different it would be here because what I found is that in, in the American culture, like people respect rich artists or people respect the bling, but the fact that you're doing music or poetry or anything interesting like that, it means nothing. It's kind of like you're a loser. And uh, I was not prepared for that. So I decided that I wanted to be like everybody else because I guess the pressure was high and I was very young and I was alone. I came here by myself. So I figured I would do something normal and I decided to be a coder. So I learned how to code and getting a job was easy and it was actually fun. I enjoy, it was kind of like internal mimicry. So I enjoyed learning about computers and making money was easy because I mean, I, I guess it's hot, it's, it's a hot thing to do. And I enjoyed doing that for a couple of years and then I was bored to death because I was not a programmer from God at all. And even though I did well, I mean, like I worked with very smart people, I worked on a team with very smart people, but it was like, it started killing me. Like I, there was something missing. And simultaneously it so happened that I married a guy who was abusive, uh, like severely for real abusive, not, not, not joking matter. And he happened to come up with this brilliant plan. His plan was to tell the authorities that I was a Russian spy, which I guess nothing like today it's not impressive because everybody's Russian spy, right? But back then uh, it was a rarity, so nobody checked any facts and I got arrested oh my and gosh. spent a month in jail and it was a nightmare. I wasn't deported, that was his hope. I mean, like he completely made it up because he was not, he was just not a nice person at all. And he wanted, to eliminate any possibility that it could possibly bring the fact that he was abusive. He was, he was a lawyer. He didn't want to win and he just wanted to shut me up. And, and so Tessa, when you came to the United States, um, how old were you at that time? I was very, very young. I was still in school. So that was, that was a part of the reason because I had no idea what I was doing in that sense. I was naive. I was kind of like a child in my mind and I was used to, being treated maybe not like with absolute love but with some kind of like sanity so when i encountered this guy who was completely mistreating me i didn't know what to do i was extremely ashamed because like what what do you do like i could never imagine what would happen to like a brilliant person like me you know what i mean like what i've got to good schools i'm getting good grades and like things like that doesn't don't happen to people like me right so i was completely caught in this thing where i was embarrassed to admit to the world that i was dealing with that and I mean, like it really messes with your head, quite frankly, because it's unfamiliar and you can't tell anybody. And then you feel like the guy who abuses you, abuses you is, is your only friend. And I mean, he makes sure also. So, and then his parents were, I mean, like they seemed nice to me. I was afraid to upset them. So I was afraid to tell anybody. There were even situations, I mean, like it was a classic. There were situations where like he had his hands on my throat and then, you know, I screamed and somebody called the police and the police showed up and I said everything was fine because like otherwise I have to deal with this dirt where, oh my God, I'm not like, my life is not as good as I want people to think. And like, you know, it truly messes with your head. Thinking back, all that nightmare was completely avoidable by just like going to the police, doing the right thing and telling my friends like early on, but it didn't occur to me because I was ashamed. 
like shame is not a great feeling, I guess. So, but uh, got, got back to the point where he, he said that I was a spy and so they got me, they were very excited. The officers were so excited. Like, honestly, it was such a, an absurd and cruel experience because I think very soon they figured out that there was nothing like in terms of like espionage or politics or anything, there was nothing, but they wanted to squeeze every drop of me. Oh they were, I mean, they were just cool, cool people. And I, and I told them, okay, this is like my husband, abusive. And I mean, like, I'm not even a good liar. I mean, like, what do you want from me? So then, but they were like, oh, well, you know, we don't care. You deal with your husband. It's, it's your, it's your problem. But do it, but tell us, do you want to cooperate? And frankly, you know, it's not easy when, like, I wasn't a street kid. I mean, like, you know, I had my adventures and traveled, traveled and, like, I'm not, like, shy in particular, but I wasn't, like, a street kid, like, knowing physical fighting or anything like that. So when they keep you in jail and they treat you like an animal and they treat you like you're nothing and then those guys sit across from you at the table and they, like, try to scare you, essentially. They're, like, you know, things... If you cooperate with us, then your life, you know, we'll make sure your life is good. If you don't cooperate with us, we'll make sure your life is not amazing at all. And like, what do you do? And I mean, like, I don't even have anything to offer. It's like, come on, people. And, but they didn't care. So it made me very cynical about the entire arrangement because I know they can do whatever they want. I mean, absolutely anything. You are like, you are in their power. They even automatically behind my back without telling me anything they canceled my valid visas like all the way to my very first one. Oh my gosh i mean because they can so wow so it made me entirely cynical because uh, when i got here i thought that things are different here that you know like america is this wonderful country with a wonderful democracy and you know i mean that differences obviously but that experience taught me that you know authorities do what authorities do everywhere like if they want something they, they get it done so so that was that was that was extreme. That was probably the most traumatizing experience in my life, because this abusive husband who totally messed with my head, and then from his hands, I went straight into the hands of authorities who were also abusive, and like it was. I mean, like I was extremely lucky that they essentially figured out that you know there was nothing they could squeeze out of me, probably, and then. After a month, I was let out on bail, and then I had courts for years, and I paid a ton of money that I had to borrow from my lawyers and this and that. But, you know, it all ended well. I recovered from that. It honestly took years because, I mean, like, you know me now, I am kind of like a normal human being and, you know, extroverted and friendly and all that. But for years, I was afraid to, like, go to a shop, go to a store, because my husband convinced me that I couldn't make the right choice in, like, what brand of juice to buy. So it was really, really horrible. And, you know, what it taught me really is that there's no reason for arrogance. Now, no matter where you are in life, like internally or externally, there's really no reason for arrogance because anybody could be anywhere. Before any of that happened to me, before my, my ex-husband messed with my head, again, I was traveling alone in Asia. I was speaking at conferences. I was doing research. I was, you know, getting good grades and all that. So it was unimaginable that I would be in a, in a that other place. So just like it seems unimaginable now because it's so strange. But it taught me that regardless of your education, smarts, whatever, courage, you know, you have to be vigilant about not betraying yourself at all times because things can get tricky. So I guess that's the main lesson. 
And Tessa, you've had to overcome so many struggles, and I really appreciate you sharing just everything that you've been through and and really being vulnerable, um, both with me and and with our audience. I'm curious, how do you bounce back from those type of hardships and really find it in yourself to press forward? I think that the most honest answer is that you do it when you have no choice. Because, well, I mean, obviously I got a lot of help from friends and just focusing and trying to be in my own element. But actually I remember distinctly a time when I was, I was locked up for that stupid thing where they thought I was a spy. And I was, I mean, I was was entirely scared, like every second of my life, scared and desperate and like beyond desperate. It's, It's a state you can't even describe. And then I remember one time I was pretty much lying down on the floor of my cell and I was like, you know, whatever happens, like there's nothing I can do. Like I have no power to change it. Like whatever happens, happens. And that was that was very relieving. That I mean, like that was something that I mean, I don't know, it did something. So just entirely just let be. And I guess sometimes you just have to rely on the kindness of the universe. Because as a human being, you you only can do what you can do. I mean, you can try to be courageous, you can try to be loyal to yourself, but to some degree, you're still, you know, like a child in the hands of the universe. So I guess that is that is the main thing. But all in all is probably never give up. I mean, like, it sounds silly and it sounds like a silly motivational speaker nonsense. But I think that on a sensory level, it means something. Like, just, like, keep pushing and hope for, for, for things to get better. And I guess it's very important to try to find people who accept you for who you are because nobody's perfect right so it's like you have to find people who love you for who you are and who believe in you for who you are because we all need that yeah find your your tribe in a way of people that are going to love you and support you no matter what Mm -hmm. and that actually segues nicely to um Uh, My next question, I really want to talk to you about your work as an artist, um, because I believe just through, you know, the work that I've seen of yours and, um, you know, going through what you have out online is that a lot of your life story is embedded within your artistic work. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your journey as an artist. Oh, talking about art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we, won't, we won't get too like pretentious or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, hashtag Tessa makes love. <laughs> see, see what I did there? No, uh, talking about art. Talking about art is really tricky because I mean, art has to be experienced in the pure. Like talking yeah, about yeah. it, close it a little bit. But I guess you know. What, I mean, like, I'm sure you can relate. I'm sure you know exactly what I mean. Uh, I think, well, the most important thing for art is to be real. And that's what I, what I, what I try to do. Just like anybody, sometimes, you know, sometimes you make art and, it, you know, like in 10 minutes, it comes from your brain and it's crap. And I think the trick is just to let, leave it behind and only push forward with the thing that is real. Well, my thing with art is robots. I, and I guess it goes way beyond that technology and today's conversations about AI and all that. I think what bugs me about robots 
is not the machines, because machines could be very helpful, but the concept of algorithmic behavior in people and the concept of replacing subjective wisdom with like mechanical choices. And a lot of my writing and my songs and my music and my performances are about that. I try to bring out subjective emotion and kind of celebrate it as opposed to the dry objective rule mechanical thingy. And I've been kind of obsessed with that aspect of robotics since I was a kid. Again, not in terms of technology, but in terms of just juxtaposing subjective emotional human behavior with dry mechanical principles. Because I think in life, we often benefit from relying on our ability to be wise, as opposed to just putting everything through the brain and trying to be logical. I mean, I don't know, that has been my experience. Like, do you agree or not? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm wondering, because so much of your work really focuses on like the subjective experience, do you believe that a lot of people nowadays are living mechanical lives? Well, it's very hard to speak for other people, but I think that's what we are encouraged to do for reasons that, who knows, they might or might not be evil or they might be just inertia. But what I've noticed, even in the media, quite frankly, like my personal preference is always first-person essays and kind of subjective experiences. And of course, objective analysis is good too, but analysis that they usually print is not objective at all. And almost it, it's almost as if first-person essays are the most... Uh, I don't know. It's probably the best way to show other people what life could be like from different angles. And I feel like that that format is almost looked down upon because mm. it's like, oh, it's not objective enough. It's not, I mean, I don't know. That has been my experience. I, I might, I might be right or wrong about that. But personally, I, I mean, I crave first person stories, especially if people have a background that is not mine that I would never find out what life was like somewhere if I didn't read that or talk to somebody. I think we really become much richer from talking to people whose lives have been different, like culturally, ethnically, you know, in any way. It's, it's really enriching. So, yeah. And uh, so, so with all of that said, um, and talking about robots, artificial intelligence, uh, really this idea of the subjective versus the objective. Uh, what are your biggest concerns when it comes to technology today or or how the tech industry is is running technology? Ah, oh, well, my biggest concern is that we all die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, like, I don't think that tech industry is special in that sense. Like, quite honestly, I think that tech industry is just, it has built on the tradition of the Western civilization. Because just like before, say, the Judeo-Christian tradition came and they told the pagans that they should essentially like change or die off because those new people came with better ideas about the world. So everybody should just like shut up and die. And what the 
tech industry. I mean, and then of course it was industrial revolution with that same idea, and then the, all the invaders, you know, European invaders on all continents. I mean, they kind of had the same idea. And that what the tech industry is doing is that again, those people came up with their own version of the world, and they try to shove it down everybody's throats. And it's not the technology that is doing it; it's people. Like it, it's individual people who are megalomaniac too much, and. So happens that they have very powerful technology that actually has the ability to influence many people at the same time, which is not great. But it's not great because, like, the, the fact that it's not great, it's not because the technology itself is good or bad, but it's because the people who are in charge of it are not responsible or, again, megalomaniac or broken, something. But their intentions, they, they for, for some reason, they think that they're entitled to molding the world for the entire humankind and, you know, animals and everybody, which nobody entitled them to. It's their invention. But I, I think because everybody's so busy and preoccupied with their problems and everybody's working through jobs and, you know, things like that, people don't have time to really, like, stop and think about it and breathe and, and maybe for good reasons because, you know, survival is hard. But it's not being used to our advantage. I think we're being tricked into making choices that do not support our best interests. Because our best interests are freedom and thinking for ourselves and making connections and talking to people face to face and doing things in the physical world and not screwing up our eyes with screens. I mean, things like that. Do you think that individuals who are working in the tech space have this this concept in mind that they're essentially running the lives of billions of people? Or do you think it's more of like a collective group uh, mentality? Like, do you, do you believe it's something that they're aware of, or maybe that they're just starting to become aware of the, of the effect that they're having on people's thought patterns and behaviors? Well, I think there's a big difference between people like you and I working in the tech industry and like founder level. Because what I have discovered, and I might hijack this conversation for a second, but what I, what I have discovered is that the motivation between, I don't know, the founders that I've personally encountered in different phases is that on some level they realize that the world is screwed up and they kind of, they want to fix it for themselves and their families. They realize that it's very hard to protect themselves from the cruelty and injustice of the world without making a ton of money. So you have to have a ton, a ton, a ton of money to kind of like isolate yourself from all the nonsense and all the disrespect and all the crap that is happening. And they get so initially fixated on this task of like making a gazillion of money just to protect themselves. And then once if they succeed in that, they kind of get divorced from human species, I think, because then they think, of themselves as gods and they think okay they've succeeded in that then maybe it entitles them to like fix things for everybody but then i mean like you got to wonder i'm sure it differs from one person to another i mean like you got to wonder if one can in their good mind think that they could live forever i mean that there's this whole thing with transhumanism right i mean like one has to be pretty damn crazy to believe that they can upload their conscious to a machine and live forever i mean it's kind of on the insanity level but i think if you repeat it enough times, then it's just the nature of the brain. Like whatever you hear a lot of times, you start to believe. 
And maybe they believe that on bullshit. I don't know. But as far as like the majority of people working in the industry, I'm sure that people like you and I, I mean, like I worked in that industry. Like, you know, like in any industry in our culture, you start being arrogant a little bit. You think of users as their little inferior, like, oh, users make that mistake or user, like, you know, but, but that's not, I mean, that, that's just a little bit, like a little bit of prejudice, which is not great, but you know, it's not that, that toxic, but if, if it becomes, I don't know, psychopathic, then usually it happens on a very high level, I think. And normal people want to do good things. And now we see all this movement in the tech industry where regular employees start getting really conscious about it, which I guess is a good thing. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I guess time will tell. We'll see. Because technology is only going to continue to advance. So it's very interesting to see how ethics will play into it as technology is advancing. Well, I'm not holding my breath. Because I think, that, <laughs> no, honestly, yeah, because yeah. the position of like tech ethicist, like I'm sure there's going to be a few people who are honest human beings and honorables, honorable human beings. But like, you know, if a culture tends to castrate everything good, it's going to castrate that too. So it's going to be like opportunism. I mean, I don't know. Like one thing that actually worries me is that uh, because I did, you know, like I do audio mixing and all that. And because of that, I did a bunch of research into like how sound impacts the body. And then from there, I went into reading about the whole electricity in the body. And the scientists that I've read, and I have to stress this like questionable subject, the people who I was reading were actual scientists, were actual American scientists. And the ones that I read were extremely alarmed uh, about the impact of electronic devices, like in terms of just pure electricity and how it disrupts like cellular function and creates mental illness and physical illness and all those things. And uh, based on what I've read with a disclaimer that I'm not myself a scientist, it seems like it's possible that even from our exposure from all those devices, we might all be, we might all go a little bit crazy. So, you know, we'll see what happens. I think that civilizations tend to balance themselves out this way or another. I don't know if it's going to be smooth or what, but we'll see. And so with all that said, why do you believe as an artist that it's important to create various forms of art um, in this age where we're all very connected through technology um, and so, so why is it important to create music, to create paintings or poetry or theater uh, in an age that is so digitally connected? Hmm, well, I think it's like you created for the same reason you've created it when technology of this sort didn't even exist. I mean, you created because you have to. Like, you know, my, 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 my favorite not so poetic metaphor for creating art, it's like going to the bathroom. I mean, like you do it because you have to. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, I mean, like, I mean, like, not that you can help it, I mean, you create it and then now promoting it is another different aspect. So, but I think it's important because it's, it's human expression, it's spiritual expression. And I mean, like, that's what we're born for. You know, like, honestly, when people, when somebody is on their deathbed, are they going to think like, oh my God, my life wasn't lived in vain because I owned iPhone 10. I mean, seriously. <laughs> it's, uh, that is so true. It's so true. And 
music and poetry and theater, they leave an impact. I think that matters. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could tell me about this initiative that you've started, uh, Vulnerable Win. I had the great fortune of being able to participate in one of your events last year. And it's very much in line with what we're talking about here on Chips, about uh, how we communicate and how we talk to and think about one another. So I'm wondering if you could tell our audience about Vulnerable Win. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for plugging in it for me. I am, I'm such a bad marketer. I, <laughs> I did not <laughs> even know the brand name Vulnerable Win, people. <laughs> no, I mean, like, it honestly, it came out of, well, on my part, it kind of came out of Russiagate because I'm Russian. And when it started two years ago, first... When I saw like glimpses of that and I I was like, no, nobody's going to go for that. I mean, like it's such bullshit. Nobody no, I mean like come on, we're all, you know, everybody has a brain. No, we're not I mean no, it's not going to happen. And then all of a sudden I see my friends one by one like say horrible things about Russian people. Like you know, like and I mean like nobody means anything bad. So everybody thinks that like I don't know, like there's a filter in my head that I just kind of don't don't attention but i mean like of course i do and if i read things like russian food no thank you it's like come on and it's just rude so i got first very pissed off and very depressed and, and like you know like all this stupidity coming at me and like all this like frankly racism coming at me like why from my circles what, I mean, what do i do it's so unfair i was so so sad and then i started thinking about it because I started thinking like what brings people to all of a sudden become just like effectively racist, right? I mean, you can't use race because it's like an ethnicist. So what, what brings people to that? And I, I realized that it's fear, that it's fear and insecurity and that people are so stressed that nobody even thinks about the consequences of their words. They just like say things to feel better. And like stress is a very tricky matter because you can't really get in the middle of it and hope that it changes. It's like people in that state, like anybody, like myself included, people who are stressed don't act very intelligent. So I started thinking about like what, what can be done to break this and to break that stress out. And I thought about talking from the first person perspective because I think that's the hardest thing to argue with. Because if you talk to somebody who is maybe coming from a different background and has a different life story, diff I don't know, different culture, different religion, different everything, and if they start explaining to you how the world is, then you know you, you're, you're naturally going to reject it. Like if you don't already agree with them, and you're probably going to get mad. But if they talk about themselves, you can't argue with that. It's I mean like that's kind of a sacred story of their perspective of their life. And like the idea behind Vulnerable Win was that if people get in the same room and talk face to face and tell, tell stories about themselves, then little by little things get, I mean, they will get a little bit closer to one another. And I don't have any ambition to like solve the world's problems or create peace on earth or, or think that like everything is going to be hunky-dory because of that. But I think that just opening this door a little bit and allowing for people to imbibe a perspective that is emotionally different, I think that's a good start. And maybe, I don't know, maybe a thousand years from now, it'll lead to something good. Yeah, I think that a lot of people have a tendency to fear what they don't know. 
and to be able to have opportunities to engage in discussions with people that might have different viewpoints from them is so beneficial. I mean, that was something that really stuck out to me in um, the event that I participated in with Vulnerable Win was the opportunity to be able to engage with people who may have different opinions than myself on on certain issues. And when we're able to engage in that sort of conversation, we're able to respect each other's opinions and then also discover similarities as well. Uh, and it was such a pleasure to have you uh, participate in this event and the present. That was that was really wonderful. That was really valuable. And I think like I myself during that particular event, I learned a lot because one of the guests, if you remember, was a man who is a transhumanist. And I'm not a fan of transhumanism at all. In fact, you know, I'm not at all. But and and just for our, our listeners who may not be familiar with the term, can you describe what transhumanism is? Uh, transhumanism, with a disclaimer that this is this is my perception of it. Like the, I, the I, ideology presumes that we are going to upload our consciousness to a computer and live forever in that in that form, and that like ideal person is a person merged with a machine. That natural humans are not good enough. So, but ideal people are cyborgs and we will upload the consciousness to the machine and live forever. And Ray Kurzweil is their thought leader. Uh, yeah. So uh, when I invited a transhumanist to be a participant in this event, I mean, that was an experiment on myself because that is kind of just the opposite of everything I believe in. And I have no kind words for transhumanism as an ideology. And like the funny thing is by the end of that event, I mean, like I felt so many good feelings, you know, for my opponent. I was like, I mean, I, I didn't even want to relate so, so much and I did. So I guess the format works. And I mean, I was my own lab rat and it seemed to work. And do you think that uh, obviously these sort of conversations need to be happening so much more often, really throughout the whole world? and. It, do you think it's it really is just that people are afraid to engage with someone that they disagree with? Do you do you think that it's it's fear that they that they might be wrong or they might discover those similarities that I was mentioning before? I think it's all of the above. I mean, like for one, I think that this uh, refusal to talk to people who disagree with you—it's relatively new. I think it only developed in the past few years. Because, like, conversations between people who disagree have existed for millennia, no problem. Like, it's kind of, kind of the normal way how you talk to people. And, like, especially where I come from, like, you know, in Russia, that's just how people talk. And everybody's straightforward. And you can say, you know, like, bullshit, this is bullshit. And, well, I mean, like, nobody's going to hate you. I mean, like, you may have, like, a heated discussion, but that's it. And... I, and I think it's a really recent development, but also in the American culture, I think victory is such a big part of the culture. Like you are either a winner or a loser. There's no other choice. So it applies to conversations. So, I mean, like to be successful means to have the last word. And people are so conditioned to think that way. I think, I mean, I might be right, I might be wrong, but this is my observation, that it's scary to not have the last word. Like it might, in a natural condition, like 
a person might not think that it's scary, but there's this tricky thing in the head where if there are other people present, especially, and that other person has the last word, then like the entire crowd might think that I'm not a winner. Then what am I? Okay, I'm not the winner. Then I'm a loser. Then like I don't make money. Then I don't get book deals. So I mean, like then this the entire thing starts spiraling. That is my theory, anyway. Yeah, that's it's so important to to keep that in mind. And uh, do you feel so? Something that you mentioned was that you feel that this um, almost hesitancy to engage with people who have differing opinions from ourselves uh, really started a few years ago. Do you think that that is because, or do you think that the internet and social media play a role in that, in that uh, people are really just searching the web for, uh, you know, quote unquote facts that are supporting their opinion and there's like a confirmation bias so they get even more set in their ways oh i i'm sure that is a big factor and i think altogether like the advent of search engines has contributed to that and kind of binary thinking because i think that well it's almost a vicious cycle because uh well tech industry is interested in training their their artificial intelligence and that is their big business goal and possibly existential because they won't merge people with machines and all that nonsense so to them getting massive amounts of data through search engines and voice and all that is you know, like that is something that they absolutely insist on having and then people who enter those terms in search engines they start thinking like a machine because it starts with human language, then it's kind of just those broken phrases, and it becomes binary. And just because people interact with computers in this binary mode, the thinking becomes more binary too. And of course, you know, Google didn't invent it because it has happened in history prior, especially during difficult times. But technology makes it worse, I think just because of how people interact with computers and talk to search engines. And then, of course, they do seek confirmation bias because it feels good and everything is available. And also, I think that the entire genre of talking to complete strangers without having access to body language and face and eyes and hand movements, it's also tricky. Because if you're in a room with somebody, you can kind of balance things out. You know, maybe something is said sarcastically or as a joke or benevolently. But if it's just on words on the screen, you have no idea. And if you're not 100% secure in yourself, then it's kind of natural to assume that the other person is just an asshole who's trying to hurt you, right? So then you jump and lash out and then, you know, forget it. So Right. I'm very curious on your thoughts when it comes to machine learning. So, so Google, they have the, this, I'm sure you've heard of it, this empathy lab where they're essentially planning to teach machines and artificial intelligence on how to read human emotions. And I'm curious as to your thoughts. I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. (laughs) My thoughts are expressed through laughter. 
I mean, you know, to be quite honest, I'm going to give you a complete peasant take, and I'm going then I'm going to give you a more like refined take. My peasant take is that why is it necessary? I mean, like we have people we can talk to one another. Like it's it's. I mean, they have to fix bias. They have to fix like racism and algorithms. They have to fix all that, but. Like a machine is a machine. Machine cannot be empathetic or not empathetic. Machine is just a machine. Like this is such a fantasy that machines are going to be conscious. I mean, that's my opinion. I mean, like I'm sure somebody's going to not be happy about that opinion, but I think that is a common sense opinion. And then as far as the more refined take, like why not? I mean, people can play with different things. People can play with empathy in robots. Why not? I mean, they're still robots, though. I mean, they're, they're still ones and zeros and, you know, a bunch of iron and other elements. They're not people, they're not sentient beings, and they'll never be. But, you know, it's nice to play with it. It's nice to have good ideas. So why not? Yeah, yeah it's interesting, just as we develop as a society and as a world, really, what our relationship is going to be with technology. You know, so much of what we talk about on on ships is the importance of genuine human relationships, which in a lot of ways is kind of a contrast from, you know, relationships with machines. And so I'm curious if there was a relationship you had in your life, um, wh whether personal or professional, that had a profound impact on you. And why was this the case? Oh, gosh. I mean, like, I, I am lucky probably I've had many wonderful human relationships. I mean, I can talk about the woman who saved me from my, my abusive husband. She was a coworker, like a wonderful, wonderful Ukrainian woman. And she had to squeeze information out of me because I, I refused to talk about it. And then she essentially brought me to live with her for, you know, for me to have a place to stay when my abusive ex was kicking me out. And then she didn't let me go back. I mean, she saved me in that situation. That was extremely meaningful. And yeah, I mean, a robot probably wouldn't do that. But I've honestly, I've had, I've had so many, even during my ordeal with this whole Russian spy situation, so many people came to my defense and they wrote letters, they supported me, they lent me money, they visited me in jail in a different state. It was, it was amazing. I mean, like, honestly, I, I found out I had more friends than I thought I did. People, people are an amazing bunch. You know, auspicious is good. Absolutely. And as far as your relationship with machines in general, I think that, well, again, I think that our relationship with machines is just an extension of our civilization at large because, well, American culture is very commercial. Like, quite, quite frankly, the, the, the average human relationship in the States, like, to, to my senses, is like an average and obviously everything exists everywhere but like the standards for friendships are very different from the standards that are in my you know in, in russia in my homeland because over there the way i grew up it was assumed that people is all you have because the government is probably going to mess with you you mean like you don't have this nobody's going to protect you but people is all you have and you really build relationships and they're warm and you could show up at, you know, any of your friend's house in the middle of the night and nobody will think it's weird. It's, it's like, it's genuine. Like it's, you, they really have your back. When I moved here, I discovered that there's like a small group of friends who are like that. 
but then other people who you call friends, but they would, you know, they would look at you very funny if you showed up in their house in the middle of the night for sure. So I think it's a kind of the nature of the American culture to a degree. Because it's very commercial, it's very individualistic, and it's very focused on like winning for me, which translates then into relationship with machines where everything is convenience and like respecting human spirit is not that important. Or, you know, I can say many other words, like it's all words in the end. But I think that building human relationships is really, really, really critical as to happiness and all good things. Right, absolutely. And, and given all the work that you've done, whether it's through your artistic work, through Vulnerable Win, and then also through your experiences, um, b- both growing up and the struggles that you've been through, what would you say is your definition of a genuine human relationship? <laughs> I wonder if I should bring my Eastern European skepticism or more of it, double on it. Hey, yeah, feel free to bring it all. <laughs> no, like, honestly, I think that if you can be yourself and if you're not afraid to mess up, like, you know, mess up genuinely. I, I don't mean like betrayal kind of thing. I mean, like, genuinely mess up when you're trying to do something good. Then I guess it's a genuine human relationship. If you don't have to like be in the performance mode because performance mode is for the outside world. I think, I think that is my definition. What is yours? Now I want to know. I think that a genuine human relationship for me is someone that you're willing to divulge anything to someone that you could trust fully and also someone who's going to accept you for who you are, both in all the best ways and all the worst ways. I think that's that's what a genuine human relationship for me is, is really someone that's going to accept you for all your greatness and then for all your imperfections as well. Cool. Yeah, I think we have similar definitions. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tessa, thank you so much for being on the Ships podcast today. I I really want to thank you for being so open and being so vulnerable with our audience and, and sharing your amazing story and, you know, the hardships that you've had to go through and, and all the important work that you're doing right now to spread awareness about, you know, the importance of communication and connection in an age where there's so much emphasis on technology that, seems to be distancing ourselves a lot. And so I really appreciate you sharing all that you have. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. And I, I am very honored to be on Ship's podcast and to be talking to you because I know you do a lot of important work yourself. And there's a reason we like one another. So it's... <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, b- before before we uh, head on out, I'm wondering uh, if you could tell our listeners where they could find more information about you. Uh, thank you so much again for being a better marketer of me than I am. So- <laughs> I try, I try. <laughs> so my handle everywhere is uh, Tessa, T-E-S-S-A, makes love, one word. And then my favorite blog of me is tessafightsrobots.com 
So you can find me there. Great. So yeah, I'll make sure to include that in all the show notes for this episode. Um, Tessa, thank you so much again. And I look forward to uh, connecting with you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully I will connect with you soon. Bye-bye. There you have it, everyone. Tessa Lena, very excited to have her on the show. She's just this full ball of energy that I really enjoy talking to and is very passionate about the work that she's doing and the importance of the work that she is doing in today's age that is very consumed by technology. And I really appreciated her sharing her story and all the struggles that she went through to make her into the amazing person that she is today. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share it with your friends, leave a comment, leave a review, or if you have the Anchor app, please feel free to send in a voicemail and it would have the opportunity to be broadcast potentially in another episode. Also, if you really like what you're hearing on the Ships Podcast, you have the opportunity to support this podcast. Supporting this podcast would allow me to continue producing episodes and continue having incredible guests on the show. So thank you so much for joining us today. Again, Tess Elena was an incredible guest to have. So happy that she was able to join us on the show. And I'll catch you in the next episode.